Morning, church. Morning. Good to see you guys. And uh, we want to get into the Word of God, right? That's what we're here about. The biggest part of worship is about the Word of God. And, uh, you know, it's this time of the year, uh, winter, but, you know, we, it makes us think of spring today. And you have to think of the, the ground actually is kind of soft out there, isn't it? And, of course, throughout the spring, it's pretty well soft. But along comes the end of June, especially into July and August. We don't have the rains. Ground gets hard. And it gets real hard. And then you, and you want to actually... There's actually maybe something you want to plant. You have to use tools to get into that ground to be able to plant the seed, right? It just It's so hardened by the elements. You know, you think of the scorching sun just packing uh, that soil, that dirt, the way it is, it has to be loosened up. So, you know, farmers, they, they utilize plows. You know, they have tools to be able to get into this hard soil. I bet you already know where I'm going, don't you, right? Well, James offers a similar instrument. He wants to take his tools of the Word of God and get into the hardness and callousness of hearts, the barrenness of spiritual lives. And the tool that he uses, the Word of God and the Spirit of God, certainly brings on a, a great conviction as you read through his writings. Uh, but his aim is really not to bring some kind of futility, uh, but it is actually for us to receive grace. He writes this to help us to receive the grace that God gives for our spiritual walks, for our maturity. And uh, so that's that's what it's about. So we're in a in a mini-series that I, I really didn't intend, and so it's developing into that. The more that I, uh, I look into this text, I'm going, can't rush through this. So we, we're calling this the Ten Commandments to Humility. Um, and, of course, these Ten Commandments are not exactly lined up the way they are in Exodus, but uh, they fall in line with those uh, commands. Um, and so uh, we looked at it last week. I intended to do three I uh, thought I'd at least get three. I originally intended to do all of them and uh, move on and wound up saying, okay, all I can do is three, and we did one last week in verse 7. And so uh, we're going to be dealing today with, we're going to try to do two, um, resisting the devil and drawing near to God. So there are two commands, and um, you, know, you, you have a, a negative aspect that's dealing with the devil, but the other one is getting close to God. And so there are a series of imperatives in, in our text, though, all the way from um, verse 7 through 10. It's like staccato fashion. Boom, 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 boom. And uh, it enables us to see how we are to walk by grace. Uh, and actually, as far as the believer is concerned, it's not some kind of a let go, let God, as He works in our lives, it's actually uh, action upon our parts. We are to do this thing. We are very much involved in sanctification, although He works in us that we would work out our salvation, right? That sounds like a familiar passage. He works in us, gives us the power to do it, but then we are to do that, and that's where obedience all comes in. So if uh, one is spiritually dry and are just uh, sitting there waiting for God to do an act upon them, uh, I have news for you. Um, you'll find yourself rebuked by James here. 
because He tells you, here's what you do. You are empowered. Now you do this. It's like you have a uh, an awesome car with a 440 engine in it. You know, you have all that power, and yet you sit in the car and you go, what's the matter? Nothing's happening. And the thing is, you have to turn the key on, right? And so we want to turn the key on, and this is the power of God that's there. It's time to take action, isn't it? James says, let's press forward. Let's move on in this walk of grace, in this progress of pilgrims. Something there. have to get in a plug. Keep your prayers up for our young men who are going to be doing the pilgrims' progress uh, they've gotten some books in now. They're getting around. They've got uh, some responses from uh, a lot of young men. It looks like there's at least eight that are going to be starting with. And uh, that's just really good. They're just trying to get the finality of that and get it going. There. So um, we're not inviting you to in, uh, to uh, join them unless you've been invited. Okay? It's an exclusive club. Invitation only. But I do want to tell you, they would covet your prayers because I'd, like, I'd love to see this thing just be powerful. Where it would make an impact on, on other young men. Uh, and that they would have a renewal in these men that have professed Christianity. And that they would be charged up after it's done. So it's just like anything else. Whenever the Word of God and His principles are put forth... It's not the the speakers or the people that attend. It's their power that does it, but it's God's power. You know, it's by His grace then that we can we can do that. So uh, had to put that in there. And uh, we we all are having a pilgrim's progress. That's it's sanctification. It's the walk. It's the walk. We're we're all pilgrims, aren't we? So the first action we looked at last week, and it's about submitting to God. That's, that's what he starts off with in, the, in that verse 7. After he gives us a qualifier, it, it's by God's greater grace. And then he says, okay, submit to God. That sounds like uh, the first commandment, doesn't it? You know, the first two commandments deals definitely with God. And, and of course, it's summed up with love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Um, so that's, that's the idea. It's aligning yourself under the authority of God. Hupotasso. That's a, that's a key word. We run into that a lot. Uh, line yourself under, rank under, military term. It's basic. Matter of fact, sometimes it's, I think in some translation, it's uh, like enlisting in military service. It's a military term, enlisting in military service. To enlist under God. To enlist under His authority, right? He gives the, uh, the rules. He gives the commands. We are to follow His leadership. It means to do the will of God. Doing the will of God from our heart with the aspect of realizing no matter what the cost is, I'm going to follow Him. If you're not willing to lay down your life, you're not worthy to be my disciples, is really what Jesus is saying. If you're not willing to take up the cross, if you're not willing to do my will, if you have to go and do your own thing, you're not worthy. To follow me. You're not worthy to be my disciples. So it's an act of taking one's proper place under God, 
the sovereign God, holy God of the universe and being underneath Him and whatever His Word says we do. That's a total change that, that has to happen for one to be able to do that. So it starts with salvation. And that's how we have to look at James here in our text. I want, I want you to realize, and I'm not jumping into this and just putting application straight out with uh, really looking at the text. And we had to point it out last week. First of all, it starts with salvation. That's really what he's talking about. He's talking to people who would be believers and unbelievers. You have mixed crowd that were meeting in these assemblies. Uh, Jewish people for the most part. And that become Christians or professing it. And yet, James challenges some of them because he knows some of them have not had their hearts changed. And so therefore, he says, submit to God. Submit to His salvation, His way of salvation. Not your way, not your works, but his, by His way of grace and His sacrifice. So, um, th- that's what's happened to us. We've been put into a new position. We are justified. But we are sanctified being set apart. That's what's happening right now. We still live in this sinful world. We live in sinful bodies and, and these bodies in this world and, and Satan uh, wants us to come underneath the authority of them rather than the authority of Christ our Lord. Uh, we still live in this world. We had an old ruler. He ruled our lives. He controlled our lives, right? That old ruler has been... Um, still giving orders. He still gives orders to us. The thing is, we're not supposed to listen to His orders, the world's orders, and of course the flesh that wants to cave in. The war is on. (laughs) The war is on. I'm telling you, He gives us orders. He commands our obedience. Satan does. The war is on. And so this is where the next command is going to come into play where it says, resist the devil. And he'll flee from you. Resist the old ruler of your past. He has no right over your lives at all anymore. Let's turn to the Word of God now and let's let Him speak to us. In James chapter 4, let's stand. And we'll read this whole section from 7 to 10 after He says He gives grace to the humble. The humble are believers. Submit therefore to God... Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Father, thank You for Your Word. And again, we come humbly before You, desiring these precious morsels, desiring Your very water of truth that is refreshing. Help us to drink again from Your living streams that freshens us and gets us ready for this coming week as we're edified through Your Word your spirit and your people. Amen. Amen. Well, what I want to do this morning is to serve notice to us concerning Satan and his angels. And I want to tell you, here's what I want to serve notice to us. That we 
should never ever let him intimidate us. Don't let the enemy intimidate us. If the world intimidates you, you're letting Satan do that because he's a ruler of this world. Uh, do not let him in, intimidate us whatsoever. We, we know that we have the world, the flesh, and the devil. We talk about worldliness in this chapter already. Uh, then we talked about the, the flesh uh, that's here it's in our members. And so, friendship with the world is hostility towards God. So we see the three enemies right in this James chapter 4. The world, the flesh, and today, resist the devil. He will flee from you. I love the promise. Anyway, um, I think we can think of it as this way. We've been uh, given a spirit of, not of timidity, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Right? We are victors. Why should we bow the knee to what the enemy wants us to do? He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You have all the power to do that. You can resist. Everyone in here can resist the devil. So that's where we start with. Uh, Satan doesn't need to involve himself too much, really, or the demonic forces in our conflicts. The flesh is enough. The world is enough. He doesn't have to do that. Everything else is already doing it. But occasionally, He will. Demons are directly involved in conflicts also. Uh, We don't want to go to extremes and say, the devil makes us do everything, because that's not biblical. But yet, we don't want to eliminate the fact that we can say, well, you know, I don't even know if I believe Satan is involved in any kind of conflicts. And that is wrong too. We want to keep balance. Uh, the Bible has one step in this. Uh, is it? Wait a minute. It's like I've, I've heard about some books where it, it names uh, the demons, and you're supposed to know who they are, so you address them by name. You know, never in Scripture does it say, you know, start finding out names of demons and tell and rebuke them. You know, it doesn't say that. It, it's simple. The Bible says resist the devil. You've, given, you've been given all the grace. Look at this James passage. Resist, resist the devil. Of course, you can think of Ephesians and such. And It says, uh, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So we are commanded to resist. When you know that a sin comes up, you are to stand firm against Let's say that Satan is really pounding you at this time, regardless of whatever the situation is. And that's what you do. You stand firm. And, um, of course, he's saying resist. And we'll get into that word uh, in a moment. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. This is uh, good truth that is to be taken. This is biblical truth. There sure are a lot of books out there. And, of course, I can think of a book called The Bondage Breaker by... Neil Anderson, a very popular book, and we sold a lot in the store at one time, and then I realized where it was really coming from. I'm going, you know, we don't really need this book here. Um, it was how to overcome Satan's power in your life and gets into intricate details, which doesn't even draw from Scripture. I look at Scripture and resist the devil. 
And that's what we're going to always say, well, I don't know what does resist me. Well, that's what we're here for then. <laughs> you know, we're going to see what does resist me. The Second Corinthians two eleven wants to say, so that no advantage would be taken us by Satan, for we are ign- we are not ignorant of his schemes. Know what his schemes are, and we'll get into that in in a few moments. There's, I don't know, I might have a list of eight or ten or something like that. And I'll just give you a boom, boom, boom in a few moments on what that is, what all he does. But we're not ignorant of that. You know, we, we know that. So the word there, resist, uh, it's really um, how we get our English word anti antihistamines. You know, that's you know, it's it's against whatever you know comes up against you, especially on. Days like yesterday, you know, when you have grass growing and pollens flying around in January, I'm going, <laughs> I've never seen the like, except down in Texas one time I started getting hay fever and enough of that, but the problem was I'd never gotten hay fever in January. It always comes in March and April. <laughs> Got it down there, warmer weather in the hill country. And uh, uh, I should have had some antihistamines. <laughs> Boy, it was terrible. It was the worst I ever got in my life down there. Um, but I, I've been feeling it lately in the last few days. Need some antihistamines, and really the Greek word is right out of that. I mean, it's very close to our English word. Stand against, to oppose. Uh, in Ephesians six ten through seventeen, you're probably very well aware of it. I read one verse there. Uh, to sum it up real quick, he says, "Arm yourselves for battle. Put on that armor, right? That's and it's really Christ. Take your stand, stand firm, right? There's a threefold repetition of stand firm, stand firm, stand firm." Do not give up ground. Don't give up. Don't start backing up and retreating. Stand firm. Stand firm. Resistance means to man the defenses. It means to be prepared for battle. Be prepared even to battle Satan. Well, you need the armor. When grace invaded our lives, when Christ came into our lives by His choosing to come in, the battle just began. You say, we didn't really have a battle before. We just gave in to whatever we wanted to. And um, sometimes I think Christians think, oh, now I'm a Christian. Life is so much better. And from here on out, everything's going to be just <laughs> great. <laughs> going to be perfect. The battle, okay. The battle has just begun, and James is saying to people who were Christians or maybe non-Christians who need to submit to God, and that's really where the text really starts. It's unbelievers, maybe, that thought they were believers, and he says, "Okay, submit to God." And when they sit to submit to God, I want to tell you what's going to happen. The devil's going to come in and battle you. You're in a war. Uh, You need to be in the mindset that grace is there for the fight. Grace is there so you can pick up the armor. Grace is there so you can get into the fight, into the conflict. It's not that it's ending, it's beginning. We need to remember that. He said, what's going on? (laughs) Oh, you're in a war, my friend. Uh, The fight is evidence. You know what? When you have a struggle in this world, when you have the trials and all this stuff that James has been mentioning all the way up to chapter 4, and he's been mentioning all these different things that come up against us, it's evidence that grace is working. You know it? 
That's how God uses His grace. The fight is evidence that you have a spiritual heartbeat. (laughs) It's real. So when you know that, oh man, there's some kind of attack going on, it does verify. It may not need to be verified, but it's still there. Don't be surprised when it happens. And that's the thing that gets us so much. We, we, we kind of forget sometimes and we're surprised of what's going on in our lives, in the world, people around us. Don't ever be surprised because sin just loves to operate in that way. <laughs> so the battle. Uh, a friend of God means that you are an enemy of Satan. You used to be the child of the devil. Child of wrath, child of disobedience, as Ephesians 2 says. And you submitted to his mastery, his cunningness. We submitted to him. And we are to take a stand against him now, against everything he stands for, against everything he perpetrates, against everything that he propagates, everything that he instigates, anything that he starts were to take a stand against him. Have you noticed out in the world you're almost against everything that comes down the line? Have you noticed that recently? You know, the world is upside down. We used to sing that song, turning the world up, or upside down. And now you start to see that everything is absolutely backwards. It's because it's lost. It doesn't know God. So anyway, uh, you take your position against Satan, against a system. Now the word there is uh, resist the... do Do we have the word for resist now? Do we have that down? Okay, stand against. Okay. Now, it's the devil. Or diabolos. Which means slanderer. He slanders you. He accuses you. Uh, It's like a courtroom term. He's accusing you. It's like he's against you. He's on the other side. Literally, it means to throw against. Have you ever had anything thrown against you? (laughs) Sometimes it could be the enemy throwing that at you. Translate the Hebrew word for Satan, which means adversary. An adversary. The devil is an evil, fallen angel. And uh, he stands against God. He stands against us. He accuses and slanders us. It says in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Yes, back in the Old Testament, we get some information on this devil, on this Satan. We get quite a bit of information, by the way. We get quite a bit in the New Testament. Zechariah chapter... Did I say chapter 3? Chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to what? To accuse him. Accuse him. Then the Lord speaks to Satan. You notice, you don't see Joshua, the high priest, speaking to the devil, but he lets the Lord rebuke him. Jude, I think, says something about that too. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. So, 
I think you see a little bit of a biblical aspect of what true rebuking is. Let the Lord do it. He's the commander. We just follow Christ's orders. That's all that we have to do and stand firm. Amen. Don't retreat. Stand firm. Let the Lord work in you. Right? Let the Lord rebuke. Revelation chapter 12.10 He was accusing the high priest, wasn't he? In Revelation 12.10 He accuses each one of us too. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony and they did not love their life even when faced with this. Anyway, there it says, accuses before our God day and night. Accusing, accusing, accusing. Slanders, slanders you. We just stand firm. We simply stand firm against Satan and it says a promise. He will flee. Isn't that interesting? He will flee. I love that promise. I think that is really, really good. Satan has schemes, right? Okay, I said I was going to give you a little list. And, and I'm going to give you the verses for uh, further homework. Some of you will know what they are right off the bat. But in John 8.44, he is a murderer. Okay? So when you see some strange murders that happen, just seem wicked. I mean, all murder is wicked because it comes from Satan. There are some that are just extremely unbelievable how people are killing people, what they're doing, and, and no remorse whatsoever. Father of, of murder, the father of lies, uh, is Satan. That's a scheme that he does. He murders. Uh, he blinds the minds of the unbeliever, Second Corinthians 4.4. 4. We've mentioned that to me. That's what he's doing. He's hardening hearts. He blinds the minds that cannot understand God. They don't like God. They hate God. Anything that has to do with life, they're against it. Because God is life. So therefore, there's the abortion problem. There's murder again, isn't it? Blinds the mind. He masquerades as an angel of light as well as his ministers, his demons of darkness. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13-15. Another one of his schemes is to have signs and wonders. He can do things that are miraculous. By the way, he can only do these things because God allows him, permits him to do, because he's not just running rampant and being able to do whatever he wants, but it's within God's authority. Somehow, it's still there. He tempts people to sin. I think that's easy to understand. 2 Corinthians 11.3 11.3 uh, The parables uh, Jesus talked about about the seed being planted. 
Satan comes along and plucks the Word out of the people's hearts. They heard it, but before it's really taken, he comes in and plucks it out. Mark 4.15 I believe uh, that he also causes some sickness and even illnesses. Satan can do that. Remember, he's, he's a devil that schemes. He's accusing you. He's against you. He'll do whatever it takes. He hinders missionary work. 2 Thessalonians 2, 17, 18. He accuses Christians night and day. That's some of the schemes. That's some of the things that he does. And now, before we end up on this part and go into drawing near to God, I have to leave on a positive light because it does say that He will flee from you. I want to tell you right now, like I say, don't be intimidated because you are on the winning side. You are victors in Jesus Christ. I want you to look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. God's Word tells us that there is nothing to fear about Satan. You have to be alert. But here's what happened. When Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Now, you could take the earthly rulers, but the demonic rulers, anything, anyone who has any kind of power, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, chapter 6, other places that rulers and authorities he triumphed over them. He he defeated death, first Corinthians fifteen. Oh I love Romans eight. You're talking about an upbeat chapter. Look at uh, what God did there. All the way starting as salvation for the foundation of the world, all the way to Eternity, future. Romans 8, 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Well, Satan sure would like to. But Romans 8 started off with what? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he can, you know, he can accuse all at once. But look at the, the judge who is our also our Savior. Christ Jesus. See who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Most, you know, a big percentage of the church, and it's well over 50% of the denominations, believe you can lose, lose salvation. Just this one verse alone just rips that apart. But this whole chapter, a whole chapter here. But not only this whole chapter, but all through the New Testament and Jesus' words, especially in John, the book of John, has everything about eternal life. How can they understand something that is 
so against God's word. If he elects his people for salvation, it's an eternal salvation. And so, who can even bring a charge against us? Well, you can't. Satan can't, but you can't. You can turn your back on God. Well, if that be the case, we, we would have already done that. Who's the one who keeps us? That's what Romans 8 is about. Read the whole chapter. If It talks about perseverance through there. The whole chapter just cries out. And so we look a little bit further and look at verse 38. He's interceding for us. He ever lives to intercede. He's the high priest. He's the priest that continues to do this night and day. Jesus does. Satan accuses night and day. What's Jesus doing? He's saying, Father, you know that I died for them. If I'm going to put it in a human term. Verse 38, Romans 8. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things in to come, nor powers, nor, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able, they have no power, to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that finishes out chapter 8. Anybody want to argue against that? You're arguing against God. So, I say to those people who believe you can lose your salvation, don't even be a part of that kind of theology, folks, because it's all man-centered. You'll take it all the way back and you'll find out if you can lose your salvation, you also are the one who gained it and that can keep it. Right? Does that make sense? Just reason it out. And then look at the, the scriptures are immense. We don't. This is not even the purpose of this message today, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the biggest percentage of the denominations in our in our world today actually believe in losing salvation. And a lot of that started somewhere around the 1800s because it started offering, and of course it's always been that way, but it offered a man-centered gospel. You know, your works. You, you did it. You do it. You know, and then you can keep it. We have victory. That's the upbeat part of it. If you're in Christ, and this is purpose, though, of James. He wants to make sure that people understand that they are in Christ. And if they're not, to make sure to, to get it together <laughs> and cry out for His grace, right? So, uh, if you look at Matthew 4.11, you'll see Jesus, who is our Savior, but He also gave some really good examples of how to defeat the enemy. You have a charge against you? Oh, it's a charge, huh? Well, what did Jesus do whenever Satan came to him, whenever he was tempted, and he had three temptations? At the end of it all, um, matter of fact, look in verse 10, and Jesus kept quoting Deuteronomy. And Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Resist the devil. How did Jesus resist the devil? The Scripture. That is how you win. You don't have to know the names. You don't have to have some kind of incantations against them. Some kind of exorcism act. He says, start drawing upon Scripture. Keep coming back with Scripture. You know He's doing a, a thing on your inner mind. You know what? You start going back to the, your heart where the Word has been held there. You hold that Word captive there and whenever it needs to be used, you draw upon that. 
the enemy will have to flee. So that's that's what I'm saying. He's a he's a vanquished foe. He's a roaring lion, but you want to know something to the Christian? He's a toothless one. <laughs> you can put your head in his mouth and suck on you or something. I don't know. You know, Satan cannot control believers. He cannot make me do anything. We were totally under his control, and now we are under the control of Christ our Lord. He can't do anything against our will that wants to follow God. Let's go to the second one. Draw near to God. This is... Oh, this is a good part. You could go weeks on this verse. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Now, do you notice the the difference here? Okay, you resist the devil... I don't know if you can really say it's a contrast, but okay, if you resist the devil, what will happen? He will flee from you. Simple as that. You notice how quick that verse is over? Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. And then the next one, look at this. James just says like this. Boom! You know, he sticks in the sword. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Now, this is, okay, first of all, let's say, unbeliever, salvation, draw near to God. Cry out to Him. But I think it also is calling for the Christian to cry out for God. Go to Him constantly. We have access all the time. 24-7. Access to God. Draw near to God. Well, what's this all about? Well, it's about the essence of life. This is life. Drawing near to God. This is eternal life. Oh, that I may know you. This is eternal life, that they may know me, Jesus says to the Father. This is what life is about, knowing God. You know Him by knowing His Word. Reading it, meditating on it, praying through the Scriptures on that, acting upon it. So, what does it not mean? Draw near to God. Well, it means this. Man does not make the first move. And so it could be taken that way and somebody would say, well, see, James is saying draw near to God and then he will he'll make the, the next step. You, you have to do the first. But it's not talking about God is wringing His hands. He's waiting for sinners to make their first move and He says, oh, I hope they come. Uh, you know, if that be the case, they'll never come. Never have one. Um, but that... That runs counter to all of Scripture. So James is not saying that in the way that it could be taken that way. But there is a command here to draw near to Him. So we have to think of John 6.44. Now, are John and James at, at odds against each other? In John 6, you have the great text dealing uh, with uh, some hard things that Jesus makes. Uh, he fed the 5,000 and then he later started talking about what that means. He says, you have to partake of me. You have to eat of me. You have to take me in. You know, that, that thought. He's not talking about it in a literal way where, you know, a, a piece of bread comes in to you and now you are born again because you ate that physical bread. But he's saying, I'm the bread. I am the bread. That was what he was teaching in John 6. And then he started talking about God is the one who draws you. 
in, in John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. So, there's a drawing there. And then in turn, we go to him because he's drawn us. It's his work. God first loved us, right? We didn't love him first. He loved us. Do we think we're that good that we would love Him first and then say, oh, okay, well, if they love me, then I'll, I'll love them. You know. they draw, if they come to me, then, then I'll, you know. Well, they will come because in John 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me, the Father gives His elect to His Son, and they will come to me. Did you notice that? That certain word? All that the ones who've been given will come to Christ. And that one who comes to me, that one who has been drawn, I will certainly not cast out. Uh, I just had to throw that you know, eternal security in again. This is the will of God all the way through. It's about Him. Um... That's irresistible. When He offers that kind of grace, you can't help but come to Him, right? Um, But also there's the aspect in sanctification. Now that He's broken our will, now He starts giving us His will, but we have the flesh who has its will. Do I I draw? Do I come to Him? Um, Sometimes we don't do that. Sometimes we haven't been praying. Sometimes we haven't been in the Word of God. Sometimes we have not been meditating upon Him. And He says, draw near to Me, right? So there's the aspect of where it comes into our sanctification. Um, look in John 6.65, just another one to back up what we just talked about. He finishes his section that he deals with and he said, okay, for this reason, I have come, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And he says, the ones that have been granted, they will be drawn and they will come. How do people get around those verses, folks? They love the John 3.16. Who are those people who believe? John 3.16 is great. I love it. But who are the ones who believe? They're the ones who are drawn to Him. And He grants salvation to them. It's been granted to them from the Father. Now, that's dealing with God making the first move toward us. Because we can't and I'm not going to elaborate on it too much because we've done it so much and we need to move on. In, in, in Romans 3, 10 through 12, there's none good. No, not even one. None seek God. He says here, draw near to God, and it says nobody can do that. How's the only way you can do it? God alone. We do answer that call. There is a part where we do do that, but it's because He's the one that is drawing us and then we go. So the invitation is there. These are invitations. 
But understand first where it starts. It was because God chose you and drew you to Himself. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Romans 8.29 Have to get into that for a moment because we're qualifying what this text means here in James because if you have conflicting passages in the Bible, then you have trouble, don't you? But the God, ne- God never contradicts Himself. He is never a God of confusion. And if you put things together, then you get a, the whole counsel of God involved. Then you start understanding kind of how He works. Romans 8.29, we know this one very well. This is where it starts because we, we, everybody claims Romans 8.28 and believe me, I claim it every day. I know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew. But nobody knows this verse. They don't want to know this verse. Or they'll say foreknew and guess what they'll say foreknew is? Well, what? They, they, he knew them that, that they were going to do that, right? And that's not the meaning of this. It's a foreknowledge, a relationship with. To foreknow, to really know intimately. Uh, It says, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, predetermined, praharizo, the horizon, marked out the boundary beforehand. Ephesians says, before the foundation of the world, to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's where everything is going. To become conformed to the image of His Son. We are being conformed. We will be conformed all the way to a glorified body. So that he would be the firstborn or preeminent, preeminent among many brethren. Romans eight twenty nine eleven. Those whom he predestined, those he predetermined, he also called in time. Did that happen to you? Guess what? Where did it come from? His eternal plan. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these he justified, he also glorified. Or you can read it backwards and you can really see how it makes sense. The ones He glorifies, they are the ones who were justified. That means to be declared righteous. And the ones who were justified were the ones that were called. Many are called, but few are chosen. In this is the effectual call. There's a general call to all, everybody, but there's a specific call. The effectual call. And the ones He called are the ones that He, what? Predestined. And the ones that were predestined were foreknown. It all started before we were ever even here. We can't take one ounce of credit and say, yeah, but I believed. Yeah, you believed, but how did you believe? Why would you believe? So, with all that said, does it make sense now, as James says, draw near to God. Draw near. He starts it, and then we obey. When Christians have been drawn to Christ, let's say this is for Christians then. I think the principle is definitely there. It means... We have a choice now. We have His will, but the flesh also has its desires and a will. Which one are you going to obey, right? And and here's the rubber meeting the, the road. 
If he's saying draw near to Christians, who moved? He didn't move. He's there where he's always been. We moved. Why haven't I been seeking him? If we're engaging in, in sin, who moved? We did. We drift. He's calling you to draw near. You draw near at that time. He's got a promise. And He's waiting there to bring you in. I think it's incredible to realize that a God is that forgiving of a God. doesn't wink at sin. But you're talking about sweet fellowship with Him. What are we doing trying, trying to satisfy ourselves with some cheap thing that lasts for a few minutes or whatever it is or a few hours we turn our back on God and our absolute total enjoyment is sweet fellowship with Him Uh, so we want to make sure that uh, we see what has brought this standing against us what's the problem you know we want to realize that we confess our sin so what does it mean it means intimate fellowship with God. It is to know God. It's, it's the cry of our hearts. Have you ever been in that situation? If you're a Christian, yeah, you have. You've cried out to God. Sometimes in just great need. Sometimes you're just talking and fellowshipping with Him. You're communing with Him. This is a living, eternal, mighty, infinite God and He allows you and wants you, He desires you to talk to Him. Now, I find that rather remarkable that the king of the universe wants to talk to me. Who am I? Because the mayor here in Jeff City probably wouldn't even want to talk with me. You know, don't even know me. I don't know her. You know, probably could be a nice person and everything. You know, nobody wants to talk to me. God does. You're talking about an intimate, loving relationship that He has and He wants it always. He's jealous. We, we spoke about that word not too long ago. Right? He's jealous for us in that sense. It, it's kind of compared with the priest of the Old Testament who was to draw near to God. And we'll get into a few scriptures on that. Um, it's one who comes in humility in awe of His majestic supremacy. The beauty of this infinite Holy, loving, gracious God who is just in every way and having... He is merciful. The cry of the heart of the sinner is that he may know God. I think it starts with knowing what His attributes are and just concentrating on these and just being amazed. An intimate way. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. That's right here. I want to know the power of the resurrection. That is to come. But even right here, I want to know Him intimately through sufferings being conformed to His death. Why? In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And it's going to happen whether you want it or not. You're going to have your sufferings here. You're going to have your war here. You're going to have the battles. We talked about that. Resist the devil and he flee from you. Draw near to God. 
He will draw near to you. Get away, or you know, stand firm. But you want Satan to go away. At the same time, you draw near to God. God draws near to you. Amazing. As we draw near, we start seeing God's holiness. When you see God's holiness, you you see man's sinfulness. And then we take action in our responses. When you see God's holiness, remember Isaiah, Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy as the angels were there. I'm a man of unclean lips, Isaiah says. Or Peter, whenever he gets this draw of fish and gets it in, and he comes up and recognizes Jesus. And he says, get away from me. Depart from me. I'm a sinner. (laughs) We see a holy God. The holiness of God is one of the biggest things that we need to ever keep in front of ourselves. But then we see that there's a response to that and we have the power to respond to be ye holy for I am holy. So now we can do that command. Um, Take a few minutes here. I have an example of John Owen. Puritan. And the old Puritans really focused upon communion with God. Communion. Now I know we're going to take communion in a moment but I'm talking something even more than just taking this communion and worship. J.I. Packer says the Puritans differ from the evangelicals today because there was quite the communion with God that John Hohen had and other Puritans. And it was a great thing. To evangelicals today, it's a very small thing. The Puritans were concerned about their communion with God. This is what it's all about. That they may know Thee, right? Knowing God. Knowing Christ. We, we don't say much about our daily experience of Christ, do we? We might talk about some heavy theology and justification, the state of the churches and the problems of different theologies out there, but do we really talk about our daily ongoing relationship and communion with God, I I think that's where we fall short. According to Packer, the greatest of the Puritans, this is according to him, but uh, I have no problem with this statement. The greatest of them was John Owen. Quite a theologian, but I'll tell you what. He lived his theology out. His experiences of communion with God is a great example for us to draw upon. Uh, he took it, it was very earnestly. He lived close to God. And uh, he said, Christ is our best friend, and ere long will be our only friend. I pray God with all my heart that I may be weary of everything else but converse and communion with Him. God used illnesses for John Owen other pressures of Owen's life to drive him into communion. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship is communion with his sufferings. Friendship, he said, is most maintained and kept up by visits. We have friends, right? Friends, we 
We like to visit each other. Well, this is what we do with with God. It's an urgent business. Uh, Owen said, talked about his academics, the political, ecclesiastical labors, and yet what was important to him was his many visits to God. He says, we have a glorious friend. He's a great God. Owen said this, the revelation of Christ deserves the severest of our thoughts. Now catch this. I want you to catch these two phrases. I want you to think. You're going to have to think deeply. The revelation of Christ deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in Him. Now, I'm going to break that down just for a moment. He said, severest thoughts, and I'll break it into two for a moment, and best meditations. Severest thoughts, best meditations. That's what God deserves from us. Or we can say severest thoughts is dealing with prayer. Prayer Meditations. I was talking with Zach Whitson earlier, and it's like, you know, it's yeah, prayer, meditations. What's what's the difference? And there is a slight difference. I think it's humanly, uh, you know, we are to be praying always, and we're to be thinking on Him always. So they really run together. It's it's there, but in a human aspect, I think it that's where it helps us define it a little bit more. There, there's sometimes when you just start thinking on the great attributes of God, who He is, what He's done, what He's doing in your life now, what He's done in the past, what He's going to do in the future. Meditating on it. This is deep stuff. This is, this is Puritan stuff. Relentless prayer. Severest thoughts. Does that help? It's a relentless prayer. What about the best of the meditations, right? He said this, I like this. You don't use this word probably. Assiduous meditations. Assiduous meditations. That's still talking about our best meditations. Relentless prayer. Best meditations. He wrote a seven volume commentary on Hebrews. Seven volumes. It was his magnum opus. His greatest work, he said, and I would have to agree, if he says it, I agree with him. He said this at the end of, uh, when he finished, it was near the end of his life. He said, now my work is done. It is time for me to die. (laughs) How did he do it? Well, we get a glimpse from the preface. He says in his preface of that book, after all my searching and reading, prayer and assiduous meditation have been my only resort and by far the most useful means of light and assistance. By these have my thoughts been freed from many an entanglement. Did he know the battles? Did he know the war? Yeah. Near the end of his life, and after he wrote Hebrews, he was ready to go with the full fellowship of Christ. Work had been done. He says, there are useful means God has given us to have this sweet 
fellowship, communion with God. You want this in a, in a really quick package? Do you want that kind of relationship with God? Are you after that kind of communion? And if you're not, what is wrong with you? Let's come over and beat you on the head. <laughs> I'm beating you on the head with the Word of God, right? No. I don't think anybody here doesn't want that. It's like sometimes we, we're, we're not there where we want to be, though, right? At Romans 7, you know, we, we sang that song earlier. Owen knew that he was to draw near to God, and he did it by prayer and assiduous meditation. He found light and freedom. And that was where his zeal was. And he, he drew uh, near those accords with knowledge. The kind of zeal we want. That's a sweet, personal knowledge. Knowing God. Knowing not only His Word, but knowing Him now because of that Word. And putting that zeal in bounds and, and making it burn brightly. And with this knowledge and zeal, that's how we can draw near to God hour by hour, day by day. Meditating, praying, a commitment to love and adore Him. It's a, it's a communion with the living and true God. In the Old Testament, it's a real Jewish thought. And I have scriptures, Exodus, Leviticus, the Psalms about priests were the, to draw near to God. That was a picture... They drew near in the temple. They did. Uh, they washed their hands at the labor, presented the sacrifices to God. That temple represented the, the presence of God. But we know the temple is our bodies. It is here. It's the body of Christ. We draw near to God. Every day way. We are now priests, right? A holy priesthood. Our cry of our heart is to to draw near to Him. You know, we were talking about Hebrews. And this is why John Owen loved to write on the book of Hebrews. Because in chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Therefore, he's talking about the high priest. I had all these Old Testament passages back in time to read them now. But here's a summation. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Whenever your need comes in, what do you have to draw upon? Look in chapter 7, verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. See, the priests were priests drawing near to God now, like they did in the Old Testament. It's now all of these saints drawing near to God. We don't need somebody to go up before us and intercede for us except for the great high priest Christ Himself. We go right to God. Direct access. Chapter 7, verse 25. Hebrews. Therefore, he is able also to save forever. There's another one, folks. <laughs> Did you catch that? To save forever those who draw near to God through him 
Why? Since He always lives to make intercession for them. He's talking about the priesthood. He says, those days are done. I walked in. I, you know, remember when the veil was torn? You have no need for some priest doing the work for you and sacrifices. The sacrifice has been done and that's what all Hebrews is dealing with. We're right in the heart of it here. Chapter 7 and such. And He is interceding for us. He is the priest. Chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with water. He draws Old Testament analogies to show that now the pure heart, that is what, that is, what to be, is to be cleansed. That's how we draw near to God. Chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith... It is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. He who comes to God, you believe in Him. And those who then seek Him, there's none who seeks Him. But when He seeks you out, you seek Him. Does that make sense? You've been drawn. And then you seek Him. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Command Draw near to Him. What does that mean? What means coming to worship, for for starters? We know it's an everyday, ongoing worship, 24-7. But it's coming to worship the Lord on His day. Week in, week out, year after year, being put under subjection under our Lord, being put under subjection of the preaching of the Word of God in a public worship where the Bible is read, where it's preached, where we pray, where we sing, and it's seen in our Lord's Supper, our communion. It's cultivated every in every appointed avenue. These are the means how, how we draw near to God. If you've been here this morning, if you don't feel like you've been drawing near to God, I say, have you not been paying attention to what God just said in His Word here? <laughs> he speaks here. Maybe I fail in my delivery, but His Word is still there. John 4, 20-24, the woman at the well. God seeks worshipers, true worshipers. Not at, in Samaria, and, and yeah, they were at the temple in Jerusalem, but He says, ultimately, it is Him. It's Christ who we worship. He will draw near to you. That's a promise. It's attached to the command. We're characterized as those who love God. He longs to fellowship with you. Uh, we are not haters of God. We are not enemies of God. We were not. We are not rebels against God. We once were. We long to know God. We pray to God. We hear His Word. We worship Him. We've had a great opportunity to be able to do this this morning so that this would encourage us throughout the rest of the week. Draw near to Him. He'll draw near to you. What a promise. In Luke 15, you have the parable. You have the Father and the Son. The Son goes away. He takes His inheritance. Leaves. Loses everything. He's a prodigal. And then he comes back. And guess what? Who's running to who? As the son came to him, as his son came to him, what is the father doing? 
He's running to him. That was a, quite the humility there because for men of, of his age to be wearing robes and then out there running was a, a, quite a, an act of humility. Matter of fact, they weren't to do that. But in this case, that's even more remarkable. So uh, you're spending regular time in, in the Bible. Folks, I can't encourage you enough. Spend regular time in it, both for general knowledge and then bring it into your own lives. Prayer, private acts of worship, public acts of worship, the Lord's table, what an opportunity. These are means. The means of grace, as the Puritans so often said. Means. We've had means of worshiping God this morning, haven't we? It's all focused around His truth, His Word. Do you avail yourself of the means God has given you so that you can draw near? Ask two questions. Are you resisting the devil? Are we drawing near to God? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, Your truth. Help us, and You do help us. You give us everything we need to draw near to You. matter of fact, You command us to draw near to You because You love that. You love us. You want us to commune with You. And now we're going to take a picture. We're going to use a picture of elements that helps us to realize how close that You want us to be and that we want to be to You as we worship You by the means of grace of our Lord's Supper, communion with Jesus Christ. Amen.